It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, Hannah Feldman. David Feldman, we sent out a search party for him. We will uh, report on his whereabouts as soon as we get it. But now we've got Hannah. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. We haven't heard back. He won't answer our calls. That's right. And that is, you'll see, ladies and gentlemen, that that's the theme of today's show, which also features the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. It is about our new report on our officials and corporate bosses not responding. It's called the Incommunicados. Stay tuned. Yes, today we're going to talk about the unresponsive people in our government and in the corporate sector who make our lives miserable. We call them the incommunicados. First up, our resident constitutional scholar Bruce Fine returns to walk us through a new report titled The Incommunicados, sponsored by the Center for Study of Responsive Law. The report meticulously documents the troubling pattern of the executive branch and Congress to ignore citizen output calls, letters, emails, you name it, they ignore it. It's a problem that pervades regulatory agencies and congressional offices, crosses party lines and jurisdictions. You know, we have a constitutional right to petition our government, but if an American mails a letter and nobody reads it, does it make a sound? Bruce and Ralph will dive into the details of the report as well as some strategies to repair our damaged lines of communication. But our government doesn't have the monopoly on ignoring our calls. In recent years, companies have made it harder than ever to get a human on the phone. When things go wrong, when our flight gets canceled, when our laptop breaks, or when our delivery gets lost in transit, human customer service representatives are more effective at solving our problems. But as companies have prioritized automated systems like chatbots, consumers are stuck with less effective service that wastes their time and often doesn't get the job done. Our second guest today will be finance and society expert, Helene Olin. We'll talk to her about her recent Washington Post column on this troubling trend in corporate customer service. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our tireless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, whatever happened to we the people, people? Hannah? Bruce Fine is a constitutional scholar and international law expert. Mr. Fine was associate deputy attorney general under Ronald Reagan and he is the author of Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle for Our Constitution and Democracy, and American Empire Before the Fall. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Bruce Fine. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, indeed. Welcome back again, Bruce. Well, we put this report out together called The Incommunicados. We're attempting to describe a burgeoning phenomena that has received too little attention in the aggregate, which is that officials in our government don't even bother to acknowledge must less respond to serious letters, proposals, suggestions, commentary, grievances. It's just a complete shutout. And as we will hear from Helene Olin, the columnist for the Washington Post, the corporate juggernauts in our country do the same thing. They drive people nuts, not responding, putting them on hold, huge wait time, press one, press two, you can't get a human being on the other line. So with that, I'd like to have you inform our listeners why this situation, this great blackout, this great non-response has constitutional gravity. Yes, Ralph. I think it begins with the First Amendment and the right to petition your government for redress of grievances, which, of course, 
is the way in which our declaration ultimately came to fruition. There were petitions repeatedly to King George III, the, our, our grievances. The parliament turned a deaf ear. King George III turned a deaf ear. And then as a last desperate measure, we declared independence. You know, you're not responding. You're no dialogue. That's nothing. And what we have in the right to petition for address of grievances as an effort to prevent a reprise of that deaf ear that King George was turning to the grievances of the colonists. And the right to petition implies a corollary obligation to respond. You know, a right to petition means you actually have a human being who receives the petition and is supposed to explain why or why not they may find the petition convincing or unconvincing. That's the heart of what democratic discourse is about. Part of what holding government officials accountable is about, requiring them to explain their decisions. We, they don't have to agree with us, but they can't just ignore us and treat us as though we're non-human beings. After all, sovereignty is in we the people. So that's the constitutional grounding here. Now, you know, I don't believe that this kind of phenomenon that has emerged in the last decades was normal, that when you wrote a letter in and it was a serious letter into a member, they paid attention to it and would give you a response. It didn't mean they would agree with you, but at least they felt that there was a communication and you had some input. And the procedure is very, very important. You feel that the government is more legitimate the more they've at least heard your ideas rather than just issuing you a dictate. That's the same phenomenon that we witness in courts of law. You may lose a case, but if you have a fair hearing, you'll be more willing to accept the result peacefully and move on. Before we get into the, some of the letters that we print, that we sent members of Congress and government officials and some private company and bar associations and deans of law school, it's a 200-page report. It's very clearly written. The typography is very clear. And you can get it by going to incommunicadoswatch.org, incommunicadoswatch.org. You can get a sense on the website of the table of contents and the introductions by Bruce and I that show how important this issue is for people to address, notwithstanding that they've experienced so much of this kind of blackout, this repudiation, this discourteous treatment by people whose salaries they pay in government or whose sales they make possible in the corporate world. But as a touch of how far we went, Bruce, we actually sent cabinet and agency heads in the federal government and every member of Congress the following four-line letter. Yeah, right. We, the undersigned, respectfully request an official statement of your policy for acknowledging or responding to citizen letters or petitions addressing government policies as opposed to casework. Our First Amendment right to petition government for redress of grievance makes a response to our overture obligatory. Sincerely, I signed it. Lou Fisher, a constitutional law expert, signed it, and Bruce Fine signed it. Now tell us, what kind of response to these yeah. hundreds of letters? Deafening silence, yeah? They don't even have the courtesy to say what their policy is. They really, at present, you know, pay attention to only people who are on their list of donations to their political campaign. If you're not a donor, they don't feel that you exist. And of course, one of the true harms that ensues from this blackout, if you will, is that there are many times, especially because Congress now is filled with people who are not really seasoned. They don't know a whole lot. And the testimony and the hearings are orchestrated by the big interest groups. They send the witnesses or whatever. So the Congress really is not fully informed. 
on many, many issues they confront, you know, unless they accept input from citizens who may be more informed than they are on particular issues. And that's basically, I think, the predominant feature of the letters that you and I were sending, Ralph, to the members. It was giving new information that they aren't getting elsewhere. Yeah, well, today, I couldn't have gotten through to members of the Senate and House on the auto safety issue. We couldn't have gotten through to even have them consider it, much less pass auto safety legislation as they did in 1966. Because I could get on the line. If I can't get the member, I could call uh, and get the chief of staff or get the legislative director in order to have access, go down the Capitol Hill and get the hearings, get the media attention and get the law that saved millions of lives. So this is serious. This isn't just a matter of literary courtesy here. It's serious blackout of the, our basic democratic right to petition our government. Give us a sense of some of the letters for our listeners well, that are I mean, in the report. Yeah, I think we can begin with some of the ones that are most dismaying, I guess, that even the private organizations no longer respond. We've sent numerous letters to the presidents of the American Bar Association. Why aren't you having special task forces investigating, you know, the wrongdoing in the executive branch that isn't being undertaken, you know, internally? Uh, you know, and this is to follow on the example of a predecessor president, Michael Greco, who had three task forces. Not only do they not create a task force, they just ignore the letters like it doesn't matter. These are the lawyers of the United States with the duty to uphold and protect the Constitution as they see it in shatters. You know, when they see incumbent presidents say, and then I have Article 2 where I have the right to do anything I want as president and remain silent. I mean, it, it was truly that's amazing. Trump. Yeah, that's, that's Trump who said that. And it's truly amazing having lived myself through Watergate. And at least at that time, Chester Spiel Smith, president of American Bars, this is during Watergate. He felt the need to speak out because the, the legal community and the rule of law was in complete jeopardy. We have it at a level far more more portentous now than then. And the legal community is basically silent. They don't say anything. The bar associations, resolutions passed, you know, impeachment resolutions doing something. And we should be first responders. Instead, we're the last responders. We're spectators. We're missing an action. You know, even the lawyers, you know, who were directly involved, you know, in overtures by Trump, you know, to obstruct justice, like his White House counsel, Okay, he says, I'm not going to do it. But instead of reporting the crime, he stays in and works in the administration and, and goes quietly away. I mean, even John Dean said, I got a cancer on the presidency and I've got to leave. And he did serve time in, in prison. The, in the Watergate, Nixon Watergate area. Okay, let's go more concisely and quickly to other letters that you've chosen, Bruce. So the other ones that we could pilk out, right. you know. The chief of Boeing, you know, after the 737 MAX fiasco, I mean, not fiasco, really, in my judgment, murder. And they do nothing, you know, to rectify the problem. They continue to fight in courts of law, you know, and fighting with a sweetheart deal with the Justice Department with regard to the killings of over 300 people, because I think they're raised above killings. They're homicide, given what was known. And we sent a letter to who? We sent a letter to who? De Muhlenberg, this is the chairman of the, the board of Boeing, and then he ends up with a big fat severance payment, you know, and escapes accountability. This is the Boeing company. Of course, maybe it should be expected since their big profits are doing what? Showing how we can be more proficient in killing people around the world through, you know, unconstitutional wars. So maybe, maybe this was par for the course. Let's look at some other letters very concisely. 
We wrote a letter to Nancy Pelosi on the 12 article count of impeachment of Donald Trump, of which she just chose one, the Ukraine affair. No we, response. It, it, no, no response. We wrote to Nancy Pelosi saying, no, why aren't you creating an office of technology assessment? Because you can do it on your own. No response whatsoever. We did the same to Chuck Schumer. We said, why aren't you creating your own COVID oversight, given the disaster that was happening with the Trump, you know, the Trump-Pence so-called oversight of the COVID response? No reaction at all. No one saying, well, we're considering it. Why does Congress have to give all of this power away? We wrote saying, why are you enforcing the subpoena power? Everybody just ignores it with impunity. Even the January 6th committee, they wouldn't enforce the subpoena power. They would just let it go to court and they wouldn't in use inherent contempt power. They don't even respond. These are hundreds of violations. They just pretend that they're missing in action or they're spectators on the scene. It's truly stunning how weak they think they are, even though under the Constitution, the architecture remains in place that makes them first among equals if they will only exercise the power. But they don't want to do it. So, How about our letters to Merrick Garland, the attorney general for Hatch President Act. Joe Biden on the Hatch yeah. Act? Yeah. And not only him, we wrote letters to the audience, not only to Merrick Garland, William Barr, the officer of government ethics, making these are over violations of the Hatch Act. I mean, Trump was open and notorious. He's commandeering federal property and federal employees to help his 2020 campaign. He's doing nothing. We don't even get a response. We don't even say, well, it's not a priority or anything like that. Just ignores the whole thing. This is a criminal statute, too. And yes, what was its purpose? Yeah. And it applies to the president. It is. It just doesn't apply to subordinates like some other provisions of the Hatch Act. You know, and obviously when the Hatch Act is not enforced, it casts doubt on the legitimacy of a campaign because one side got to use government resources and the other did not. I mean, that's what we expect in China and Russia. This is the United States of America. You know, the government should be neutral. Each candidate should be on their own footing when they're running for president. You know, that's and that's why the Hatch Act was passed. These guys just ignore. I say it's not only infuriating, you know, that they ignore it. They don't even dignify the request as being worthy of a response. I mean, really? I mean, why don't you explain why you're not doing you don't believe it's a priority or whatever? After all, they have the taxpayer money. They employ all sorts of other people, you know, without high priority work. Anybody who can respond to a responsible, courteous letter asking, why aren't you discharging these responsibilities under the law? Complete silence. When you were in the Justice Department years ago, you had to handle communications to Congress. Tell us. That's right. At six o'clock every evening, I would call every member of Congress whose district might be impacted by what we would be doing and say, we just give you a heads up. We're doing X, Y, Z. You know, you need to know about it. You don't disagree about it. But, you know, we have to respond to you. Congressional correspondence was always any point for Congress was always a priority. It was always that was the first in, first out, if you will, progress of responding. You know, there's no way that we would ignore uh, members. And of course, at that time, Ralph, the chairman, pretty important, the speaker of the House and the majority leader of the Senate. OK, they were there, but they were not all dominating like they are now. I mean, so that we were responsive to the chairman and the subcommittee chairman. They held serious hearings and they intended to enforce their subpoenas. I mean, today, the executive branch doesn't even respond to overtures, committee chairs, anyone else. I mean, the only people maybe from time yeah. to time, the Speaker of the House, the majority of the Senate, when they sit down at the 11th hour and negotiate a 
you know, a $6 trillion, you know, continuing resolution and put it on everybody's desk to read and vote on in, in, in three hours. And it's a 3000 page document. You know, this, that's not democracy. There's no dialogue. There's no engagement, you know, with the people. Why are we doing these things? Who has input? And that's why I think the government becomes more and more removed, if you will, distant from the people. They don't really understand what the concerns of the everyday citizen is about because they don't really pay any attention to them. And we wrote letters under the rubric of foreign policy and war in this report called the Incommunicados. What about some of those? Yes. How about the one we sent to Joe Biden on mass starvation in Yemen? Yeah. April 2, 2021. We kept explaining, and this is something that Congress won't, but to the president, you know, these are the limits on your power to conduct war. And these are your obligations since we actually assisted in the creation of a humanitarian crisis in Yemen by providing intelligence and weapons to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, you know, to try to destroy the country, engaged in an illegal war. That actually put us in an illegal war well, because the Congress hasn't declared war against Yemen, but by providing systematic weapons that Biden was doing, he put us in a war capacity, a co-belligerent, if you will. And then he stands aside and lets all the people starve. He doesn't have any special, why isn't he using the armed forces to distribute aid? You know, we know how to do that. It was called the Berlin Airlift in 1948. We knew how to distribute candy bars, you know, to very deprived West Berlin children. So we have experience at knowing how to relieve a humanitarian crisis if there is one. But in Yemen, no, didn't lift a finger. Somebody else's problem. Again, no response. Then there were two letters we sent to Donald Trump on lifting the blockade on Gaza and saying no to Israeli annexation of the West Bank. Tell us about those. Yeah, well, yeah, of course, we know that that the members of Congress would never send, you know, such a letter. I mean, just I think it was in today's papers, Ralph, it's, the vote in the House was like 410 to 9 saying, you know, we should not be criticizing Israel. You know, it may have a few blemishes, but <laughs> you know, war crimes you can overlook. So we know that the president will never get any message like that from Congress. So we wrote, hey, this is these are international legal norms, especially to a president who touts his foreign policy as promoting a, quote, rule based international order. Well, where are the rules you know, in the Middle East? Where are the rules with regard to Israeli's treatment of Palestinians, including, you know, killing a U.S. citizen? Shireen Akla, who was a reporter for Al Jazeera in Janine. And we sit by, well, the Israelis first, they said it was, she was caught in crossfire, then said, yeah, your bullet really did come from a member of the Israeli Defense Forces, but it really doesn't matter. We looked at it and it's all fine. You know, no outside investigation. And of course, Trump ignores the, all of it. We would expect him because he's in the, the pocket of Netanyahu. You know, he removed our, uh, our embassy to Jerusalem. And he acknowledged, you know, the so-called legitimacy of of Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the Golan Heights. So he's there because he wants to be crass. He wants the money and the donations and the support of APAC. So he's an echo chamber of what Israel is. And we sent a letter to George W. Bush in 2005 on Iraq and the poor families sacrificing while war corporations profit. Tell us about that one. Well, I mean, here we have a president, he, you know, no child left behind. You know, he, he conducts, you know, a, a failed, complete a war of aggression in Iraq. And I, I want to pause here for just a second. You know, we were the ones at Nuremberg with other our allies who fashioned the international law of crime. It's called the war of aggression, maybe a war not in self-defense. And if there was ever a war of aggression, not in self-defense, you know, it was the Iraq war. 
he didn't have any WMD. And the, the, we didn't understand that he was faking it because he was trying to deter Iran from invading, not the United States. And we know it really had nothing to do with WMD because we have a cabinet member, Paul O'Neill, who said the very first cabinet meeting in 2001 in January, he was already talking about invading Iraq. You know, this is ridiculous. Weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, yeah, the way, they, that was just an invention after the fact to justify what he's gonna do anyway. I know that was gonna be the flagship democracy. You remember, this is a president who said in the second inaugural, oh, my goal is to eliminate evil from the earth. You know, you should start at home, why don't you? You know, with all the <laughs> surveillance programs and all the other things that he was doing in violation of the law every day, including the torture program that has been fully exposed, unfortunately not prosecuted. There is one letter that we sent to a senator who actually responded, it's printed in our report, The Incommunicados, which you can get by going to incommunicadoswatch.org. And it was Tim Kaine. Why did he respond to what kind of letter that we sent well, him? It related to the war power issue and why you're not doing any oversight. Now, Tim Kaine has introduced a couple of pieces of legislation. I think they're very anemic. As always, from time to time, he's verbally opposed you know, the war power. But the fact is, in Virginia, and he represents the state of Virginia, they have huge, huge defense contractors. No Virginia member is ever going to vote against the military-industrial complex. So these are kind of just pro forma efforts to try to rein in limitless and illegal presidential wars. But at least he did acknowledge, because he has been engaged on war issues, so he, he understood that there was something behind what we were saying. Unfortunately, however, many of these members who will say something from time to time, when you ask them to introduce legislation and do something serious, they start running for the hills really, really fast. Why should our listeners read this book? And what kind of action would you like our listeners take if they go get the book at incommunicadoswatch.org? Never has there been a book written like this. We're trying to raise the banner, listen to the people, respond to the people, respect the people, and stop blacking them out. Whether you are a government official, a member of Congress, state legislatures, local city council, or the imperious corporate bosses that dominate so much of our political economy. Well, I think the reason to read it is because I think, Ralph, this is the most systematic effort to show that this is not an aberration. This is now the business model, if you will, or the lawn business model of how these people and the corporations operate. And it ought to awaken and alarm, you know, a reader. Hey, you have to do something. Now, one individual can't do something, but collectively we can do a whole lot. I mean, like writing and saying, well, we're going to vote you out of office unless you change this policy. The one thing that we, we need to inspire, you know, in our citizenry, Ralph, is that we have to, as citizens, take action, even if it doesn't look like it's going to succeed overnight. Very seldom do major things change overnight. Look at all the years you put in before there was any auto safety. You can't say, well, it's not going to change things tomorrow, so why bother? Yeah, but if it changes things for posterity, that's good enough. Or for your children's children, that's good enough. You have to be resolved and understand that's the most important part you have to play as a citizen in a democracy. Otherwise, nothing's ever going to change. So people get disappointed. Well, it's not going to change tomorrow or next week. So I'll just go ahead and drink a beer or watch the tennis match or something like that. That's the death knell of, of, of civilization and our democratic dispensation. You got to get involved and get angry at this. You don't have to be you know, engaged in any kind of nasty communications, 
But you have to stay alert and, and make it clear that you're going to your money and your votes going to turn on how people behave, even if in the short run, nothing alters. And from what you just said, that's one reason why we started a whistleblower protection movement and got federal and state protections of ethical whistleblowers and government and corporations so they can take their conscience to work. They can speak out the truth. They can foresee and forestall terrible product, toxic hazards government corruption, and you name it. So we've made quite a bit of progress in that area. But we want people to write their members of Congress and say, send us your policy on responding to serious citizen requests. Not, you know, you lost your Social Security check, can you help me? That's called casework. No, this is serious policy, petitions, requests for public hearings, bringing the lawmakers' attention to serious health and safety problems around the country that are being ignored. Just ask them, what is your policy? And I want it in writing. You don't have to pay for a stamp. You got the franking privilege. I want it in writing so I can talk about it with my friends, neighbors, and co-workers and just say, P.S., remember, the Constitution starts with, quote, we the people, end quote, not we the Congress. Yeah. Exactly right. And if, to be candid, the, the citizens got to take, they still have all the power. The architecture is there. They just got to use it. You just can't be an inner, you know, Justice Brandeis once said the greatest danger to our country is an inert people. I'm an ordinary citizen, you know, out here in California, and I'm hearing they're not even responding to Ralph Nader, not even with a form letter. They're not responding to Bruce Fine, a constitutional scholar, not even with a form letter. Why do I think my demands are going to be met? How do you organize these ordinary citizens who are not as even close to being as savvy as you are to do any of this? The answer is uh, your voters. We're not voters in your state and district. And they still have this custom of not openly repudiating voters because they're afraid of contagion. You bully a voter, it gets in the press you look bad. So they, they still are sensitive in that way. So I would contact them as voters, come up to them as voters and demand you, a written policy. But unless you are a block of voters, like on an individual basis, they're not communicating because, you know, like Bruce said, they're communicating to maybe to donors, but they're maybe not communicating to others because they feel there's not enough of them. Well, there's all kinds of citizen groups that go up and meet members when they go back home. So they can say, I belong to the League of Women Voters, or I belong to the Veterans for Foreign Wars, or I belong to the local consumer group here. And I know a lot of people who share my views. You people in Congress are shutting us out. You're not responding. So, and you know, if they want to know an example, well, if you're energetic enough to go up to your senator and representative at these meetings, you, you might have examples of letters that have never been responded to. We're always getting emails from our listeners saying, you know, we sent letters in and we don't get a response. So copy the letter and give it to the member right on the spot with no flack in between. Yeah. And there's also, you know, every member has, you know, regional offices. You don't have to come to Washington, D.C. You go visit the regional office in person and make a complaint. You know, you don't have to be nasty, but that'll they'll, they'll remember that somebody makes a personal visit. The other opportunity you have, it depends you know, somewhat of the state and the district, is oftentimes the local newspaper. They'll care about it. And you don't have to get the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal to get engaged. The local newspaper, what is it? You know, you don't responding to anything. 
you know, in the local newspaper says, well, yeah, we do get and we do print letters to the editor, you know, and most of them say, OK, if they even if they don't print it, they'll respond and say, thank you for sending it in. So they'll say, well, that's no way to run a congressional office. So you may be able to get some mileage out of working with your, your local newspapers. There was an example of a Southern member of the House rebuking a citizen at a meeting during a recess, and someone was taking a video, and it went viral all over the state. So you can, you can videotape the interaction and send it out. There are all kinds of ways to get attention of members when you can confront them personally. They don't have a flack, intermediaries yeah. blocking access. you got to stand up, speak out, as you know. All the blessings that we received from our forebears started with a few people speaking out and not saying, oh, it ain't going to happen. Oh, it's not possible. As some sages have said, all the improvements in humankind that we now have started out as being described as impossible to achieve. So thank you very much, Bruce Fine. You can get the copy or copies of Incommunicados by going to incommunicadoswatch.org. It's a 200-page report, very heavy. You will get it for a very reasonable price, which includes first-class postage. It's only $12, and that includes about $4 of first-class postage. So send it, send it to your library, send it to your citizen neighborhood group, wherever. Get extra copies, and let's go. The least we can do in this country is make the people whose salary we pay and whose sovereign power we delegate it to respond to our petitions, as is our right under the First Amendment. Make it a First Amendment issue, as Bruce has pointed out. Thank you very much, Bruce Fine. Thanks, Ralph. We have been speaking with Bruce Fine. We will link to the Incommunicados report at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, no chatbots here. We'll talk to real human person, Helene Olin, about the deterioration of corporate customer service. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, July 21, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The Federal Trade Commission is investigating whether OpenAI's ChatGPT has harmed people by publishing false information about them, posing a potential legal threat to the popular app that can generate eerily human-like content using artificial intelligence. That's according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. In a civil subpoena to the company made public last week, the FTC says its investigation of ChatGPT focuses on whether OpenAI has engaged in unfair or deceptive practices relating to risks of harm to consumers, including reputational harm. One question asks the company to describe in detail the extent to which you have taken steps to address or mitigate risks that your large language model products could generate statements about real individuals that are false, misleading, or disparaging. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulcahyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with Hannah Feldman and Ralph, and thank you for holding your call is important to us. Hannah? Helene Olin is an expert on money and society. She is an award-winning columnist for the Washington Post. Her work has appeared in Slate, The Nation, The New York Times, The Atlantic, and many other publications. And she serves on the advisory board of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. She is co-author of The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated, 
and the author of Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Helene Olin. Thank you for having me on. Welcome indeed, Helene. Well, this column really got my attention. It appeared in the Washington Post on March 13th, 2023, and the title was Opinion Vanishing Phone Customer Support is Driving Us All Insane. And there isn't anybody listening to this program who hasn't experienced being put on hold or press one, press two, you press two, and you're put on hold, you know, talking to a robot, and it's just getting worse and worse. The nub of her article is the third paragraph, which I want to quote, and then we'll go to the rest of her points. Here it is, quote, it shouldn't be this hard to speak to a human. Why won't corporate America answer the phone? Increasingly, companies large and small are making it difficult to access a real live person when help is needed. Contact numbers are hard to find. Wait times to speak to an operator are long. One industry analyst estimated the average wait tripled from 2020 to 2022 and says he believes it's still a third worse than before the pandemic. Some phone lines are seemingly staffed entirely by robots, forcing you to go through menu after menu in quest of a live, real person. Or increasingly, companies don't offer a telephone option at all. End quote. By the way, it's very hard to get through to your telephone company when you have a grievance. Your own telephone company has this ricochet and on hold, and they never want to put the resolution that they promise in writing, and you can't find the person who you talk to about it because they're a rotation. A lot of the people don't give their last name. I've had experiences where they won't give their first name. They say we're we're prohibited by company policy. And I just learned from your article, Helene, that Facebook, giant Facebook that is supposed to specialize in communication, doesn't even have a telephone number. So let's go to your first point here, which is the companies say they're reducing options for human contact by popular demand. Your view? I don't believe this at all. Their stated argument is that younger consumers, I always hate using the word consumers for regular people, but here we are, would prefer when you look at Gen Z surveys, when you look at millennial surveys, would prefer a computer option over the phone. I think it's true that they would prefer to have the option to use that, but everyone, and I mean everyone, wants good phone service that I've spoken to. When I began reporting this article, which of course started when I couldn't get anybody on the phone a few times, I was the recipient of story after story when I would just mention to people, oh, I'm working on this piece. What are you working about? I'm working on a piece about how you can't get somebody on the phone. And I would be these almost operatic 15-minute sagas of people desperately trying to get some satisfaction from what would often seem like a fairly minor thing, and in many ways was a minor thing. But people were just furious that they couldn't get help or couldn't get help easily trying to resolve the simplest disputes with by simply picking up a phone and just being able to reach someone. And what I would hear over and over again is that they spent time, you know, huge amounts of time over very simple matters if they got satisfaction at all, which I should say as a segue is actually one of the points is that a lot of people just do give up and don't get the help they need and corporations keep your money. Yeah. And as you say, consumers pay a multiple price. First, emotional aggravation. Second, loss of precious time, you say. And third, literally money, because they just give up 
on pursuing. This is not worth my time to try to get $15 taken off this bill that doesn't deserve to be on the bill. And therefore, the power shifts completely to the corporation, and that's why they do it. So tell us about how it reduces the consumer's ability to negotiate in a credit card economy where it's very hard to pull back what you've sent by way of money to your vendor, unlike if you use checks or cash. Go ahead. Right. I mean, this was actually one of the pieces that really fascinated me the most was the experience of having to negotiate an issue out when it was very hard slash impossible to get a human on the phone. And because one of the stated reasons for doing this is their claims of an employee shortage, which I, you know, which in the wake of the Great Resignation has some validity to it. But on the other hand, as a number of people pointed out to me, it is a worldwide economy here, right? But the other part of this, and this was the part that really fascinated me, wasn't just simply that they didn't necessarily want to pay for the employees. It was that they didn't want to take the, the financial hit of actually helping the customer. When you have a human on the other end of the phone, it's not just that it's easier for the customer. It's not just that it's less alienating in some ways. It's that a human being is often sympathetic, is will often go above and beyond. A human being will resolve your problem. A human being might also give you something in return for a problem. So for example, let's say you've had an issue where you're attempting to return something. I'll use the example of the vegan food delivery service I was attempting to cancel at one point. A human being might actually throw in a freebie for you. Oh, you know, I, we always offer up one week extra, you know, here, we'll give you two if you just sign up again, or we're so sorry for the inconvenience. That sort of thing doesn't happen as easily, if at all, when you're dealing with just an automated service. If you have a problem with a hotel room, it's unlikely to comp you or give you an upgrade and so on down the line. And that's another way of clamping down on expenses that people often don't think about. And yet that's the sort of thing that actually makes us, our experience as consumers and our experience as shoppers, happier and better, even when things go wrong. Well, you know, the incentive for big corporations, especially to do this, is not only they shatter the bargaining power of the consumer, they also reduce the number of workers they have to staff We've had clear indications by some of the utilities that they also have algorithms that indicate how much longer you can keep your customer on the line in the aggregate, which will reduce the number of workers that you have to employ. California is trying to do something about it. Tell us about legislation that passed in 2018. Well, this was a very minor thing, but I think it was an important thing where it was that if you were speaking to like a chat box online, it actually has to tell you this is a chat box. This is something we don't think about a lot, but we actually often don't know if there's a human at the other end of the chat box or if it's an automated chat box. And just simply knowing that gives you more options as a consumer, right? You could simply ask to speak to a human immediately, presumably. And that's an important thing. It doesn't solve the problem in and of itself, but it gives people a little bit more power and a little bit more control over the situation and a little bit more knowledge. By the way, we're talking with Helen Olin, who is a longtime writer on consumer financial issues. You've been around long enough, Helene, to remember when corporations used to say, without provocation, quote, the customer is always right. The consumer is always right. End quote. 
I haven't heard that in a number of years, particularly since the Internet came on board. But there was a survey by one poll. It's called One Poll in 2021, noted in your column. What did it find? This poll basically found that almost all of us, or two-thirds of us, think that being able to reach a human is the most important part of the consumer interaction, basically. That when we have a problem, we don't want chat box. I mean, we're thrilled if it's there. We like the option that's there. But it's not necessarily what we want to do. It's not our preferred method of reaching out. And we really want to speak to a human which kind of makes instinctive sense. I mean, you're angry, probably. You're unhappy. You want somebody to acknowledge your problem. We live in a society where people frequently feel alienated. They feel like nobody's listening to them. And when you get a chat box, even if it solves the problem, you still don't really feel like anybody's listening to you or particularly cares. And I think that's a really important point because so many people, we live in a society right now where there's so much free-floating anger and people just feel like nobody cares what they think. And this, in a lot of ways, is just a perfect example of it. Well, you know, this is what happens when you have a credit card economy rooted in one-sided fine print contracts because they got control of your money. And that's why they don't listen to you. They got control of your money. You're not going to be able to stop payment. You're not going to be able to say, you know, I'm a cash customer. I'm not buying from you anymore. And I wish that financial economists would spend more time on the fine print contract tyranny. I call it consumer servitude or consumer peonage. It's unprecedented. It forces consumers to give up their rights when they're wrongfully injured, to go to court, takes away their right for trial by jury. And a lot of the abuses that you cover and your colleagues cover, are made possible because of something on page 15 or 20 in a fine print contract. I just saw the Airbnb contract. It's 61 pages. That's, that's a lot of fine print. And it's all in the direction of saying, we, the vendors, have got the power. We're not responsible for anything. You're responsible for everything. So I like what you say in your column when you say, quote, what's really going on here is a question of power. Increasing leverage belongs not to the customer paying the bills, but to the company offering the needed service, sometimes one for which there's no competition. Foisting the work onto the consumer is a bet that the consumer has no other options or won't choose to exercise them. And often, that bet is a good one, end quote. You say, have you paid much attention to this effort to stop the abolition of payment by check or cash and just... There are some retailers in various states that say, we don't accept cash. And there are some states who require you to accept cash, like the District of Columbia, Massachusetts, but they don't enforce it. Have you ever written anything on that? I haven't written on it, but I do follow it. And I think it's a really concerning trend because it allows for a level of discrimination. It's basically, as I point out, I'll digress for a quick second. I did a piece last year on QR code menus. And one of the things I found out was that something like 30 to 40% of people over the age of 65 don't have a smartphone at all. So when you do a QR code menu in a restaurant, it's tantamount to saying to people over the age of 65, we don't necessarily want your business. And I think that's kind of the same thing that goes on when you talk about businesses that will only accept, you know, say, you know, Venmo, Apple Pay, credit card, fill in the blank, but they won't accept cash. 
there are people who simply don't have that access. They tend to be disproportionately poor. They tend to be disproportionately elderly. And it's basically a way of shooing away business. It's not what's being said. It's often not the stated reason. It's often not the reason at all. It's simply a, a thing about efficiency. But it does come with a significant human cost. And that cost goes mm -hmm. beyond, oh, I just feel like I have a $10 bill and I just feel like using it today. It goes uh -huh. to sort of the heart of the human transaction in a way and who is hurt and who isn't hurt by these things. Yeah, well, as you know, better than I, there are tens of millions of people who are unbanked. They don't have credit cards. And they're the ones who are basically excluded if you don't protect cash and check payments and prohibit the fine print from being able to say, we don't accept cash or check and get away with it. My overarching right. thing is that this is part of why Americans are so angry, is our lives as consumers. In the United States, we often confuse consumer our consumer lives with being a citizen, right? We sort of think, oh, if the phone line isn't working, if the airline isn't working, if we can't get through to the doctor's office, there's something wrong with the state of the country. And every time one of these interactions deteriorates, there is the sense of things don't work, which I think is kind of pervasive in the United States right now, is that a lot of people feel things don't quite work right. And I think it translates into this free-floating anger that then you know turns around and gets leveled at random people, at the government, fill in the blank. And I think the strangest thing about it is, is we often don't really realize it because journalists, as a rule, do concentrate on government and they don't realize that how much this is part of the problem. And I don't think, you know, people have in a long time. I think, you know, since the height of the, of the consumer movement, which I don't have to tell you anything about, obviously, in the 70s and 80s, it's kind of an issue that's faded in a lot of ways. Yet it's an issue that is our lives and is something we are all obsessed with quite a bit. You know, there's this kind of dominant narrative out there right now that American consumers are becoming, you know, greedy and grasping and they're, you know, abusing the help which, you know, happens. I don't want to say every consumer is, the per is a perfect citizen by a long shot. But I think it is partly a response to the fact that people are often treated very, very badly. And there's really no one to complain to that will actually do anything about this. You make a so, very important point. That's one reason the polls come in so low for people having trust in institutions. I guess we need some psychologists to try to figure out why it doesn't matter whether it's government officials who are supposed to be our hired hands or corporate officials who are supposed to be imbued with customer service, behaving the same way, probably for different incentives. But I want to propose two ideas by my nephew, Tarek Milleron, who has been on the phone with other companies like everybody else. And when he gets frustrated, he thinks of ways to fight back. The first one is to send a bill for the customer's time to the company. You basically say, it took four and a half hours to resolve a complaint with my telephone company, which in the old days would have taken five minutes. And this took four and a half hours over four weeks, say, to resolve it. And my time is valuable, and here's what I'm charging, and I'm billing you. Now, if a lot of people listening to this program would email us and let us know that they're willing to send a bill whenever they are forced unreasonably to wait, 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 and often not even get their grievance processed, to send a bill to the company. 
So we get a torrent of bills, creates news, people get more aggressive, more protective of their rights and their time. I want to know, has he ever actually received money? No, he he just proposed it as an idea. And we're going to actually try it with one of our cases. We're going to send the telephone company Verizon a bill. But I've heard in the past that some people have sent bills to their doctors because they were kept waiting two, two and a half hours in, in their waiting room beyond their scheduled appointment. But that's very important to try to get done. I mean, what do you think of that? What's your comment? Is that something that could spread? I think it's hilarious. I'm not convinced it'll be all that effective, but I think it's a hilarious proposal. And I would like to see somebody respond to it and see what kind of letters people get back from corporations. And if they get coupons for a free hamburger from you know, a fast food joint or fill in the blank, right? I wouldn't be shocked if you yeah. get something out of it in return. I'd be curious to see what. So I want somebody to report back to me on this if they do it. Anybody listening, that includes you. That would be very good. And then, then he has a follow-up. The follow-up, if it's a rather serious, well-documented situation, is to sue the company's small claims court. And if they don't show up, they get a default judgment against them. And if they do show up, it's a rather local news item, isn't it? So people have to learn how to use a small claims court. Right. And they have to like be willing to deal with the bureaucracy of that, too. But it's not, neither of them are the worst ideas, but, you know, they require a lot of time and effort. And, you know, that's the issue here, right? The issue is, is all the time and effort is being put on you, the person who paid for the service. So not only is it the customer, is it right? It's the customer is responsible for all things that go wrong. And it's on the customer to put in the time and effort. And we're going to make it harder and harder and harder for them to do. And that, to me, is kind of the crux of the issue here. And that's the crux of the issue when you call up and you can't get somebody on the phone, because most problems actually are kind of individual in a way. They aren't, you know, they aren't simply cookie cutter, press one here, press two here. They are, you know, they need somebody to come in for a minute and say, here's what you do, here's how to solve it. And that is for the customer, if not for the company, the most efficient way to do it. But for the company, who knows half the customers will vanish and go away, who knows that the customers will just give up, who knows the customers will take a partial solution, or who know the customer will go through a phone tree branch with you know five or six menus before they even have a chance of talking to a human. For them, it's a you know it's a dollars and cents proposition, and they think they're making more money than they're losing. Well, we've been having a delightful conversation with Helene Olin, who's a contributor to the Washington Post opinion page and the author of, quote, Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry. Hannah? Thank you. Thank you, Helene. This has been very interesting. I love passive aggressive strategies for dealing with corporate roadblocks. As a consumer, imagine I'm a consumer. And, you know, by the time I get through to a human on the other end of the phone, I'm so desperate to talk to another person. I'm exasperated. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm furious with the company that's made my day so miserable, but I don't want to take it out on the person on the other end of the line. I'm fully aware they probably make minimum wage. They deal with desperate, exasperated people all day. I would rather make my life easier in solidarity with them rather than punishing them for what their boss is doing. Are there approaches to 
this issue that kind of align the customer service staff themselves with customers or is that is that not really developed I would say there's not a lot of development here. One of the things that really surprised me the most when I worked on this opinion piece was I, I reached out to some of the, the various organizations who advocate in these areas. And I reached out and I said, oh, tell me about the legislation out there that, you know, so that there's actually a human on the other end of the phone, right? Very basic question, right? And there actually wasn't any, which kind of shocked me. I thought for sure there would be some legislation out there demanding that we be able to speak to a human. That seems like a pretty basic requirement on some level. And it simply didn't exist. So I think this always ends up back on us until there's meaningful government, you know, whether it's legislative or, you know, regulatory reform and you know, and movement in that area. You know, it is perfectly natural to go through and be very angry after you go through a phone tree for five or six, seven minutes. I mean, I joke, I mean, I, you know, some, they should put blood pressure monitors next to people when they're doing it and watch their blood pressure go up. I mean, so it's a sort of horrible situation for everyone because, you know, it's a terrible job in a lot of ways because you are dealing with a lot of angry people. People are calling not to tell you how wonderful you know, the product experiences, but because they've got a problem. Angry people are always the ones who are reaching out. That's sort of the definition of the job. And then, you know, you combine that with the fact that it becomes harder and harder to reach somebody, which makes people even angrier. And then, of course, you just deal with all the free-floating rage in our society. All of this is sort of a perfect storm that comes together. I would say to me, you know, the real issue is, of course, just try to remind people, be nice. These are, you know, fairly low paying jobs, which a lot of people don't know, by the way. We think everybody knows certain things. And that's, you know, just not true. People don't really realize this. And then secondarily, be nice, but to also understand that this is a problem, not of the individuals making either on either end of the phone, but of corporate America's making. And secondarily, of our government really not dealing with this in an adequate way that's proportional to the issue. Well said, you know, you mentioned in your column that Congress has got nothing going on this at all. And it's good to have focused on the workers because, you know, they are very much repressed here. Their conversations with irate consumers are always recorded. And so they're afraid to say anything that might express their personal judgment about the specific complaint being made. And that angers consumers even more because it's like they're talking to a human robot. And my nephews come up with this other idea, which is to have a consumer group with the capability to rank, say, the top 10 telephone companies or electric companies or banks in terms of wait time, what you call the time tax on consumers. And then have people say, oh, well, I don't want to deal with a company that doesn't put a human being on the line when I have to reach the company selling me the services or the products. That would take some doing, but it would try to get some sort of market competition going here. Well, I hope that with the help of Helene Olin, that listeners, you've become more informed, indignant, and resolved to do something about it. Before we leave, Helene, is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't covered? 
I just want to say that to people that we're often told these problems are sort of small and that, you know, we're sort of being entitled for complaining about them. And I just want people to know you're not entitled because you think this is an unacceptable thing. Your time is valuable. Your time is money. And your, you know, your spending should give you some power. And I think it is perfectly reasonable to be increasingly upset and angry and want change in this area that, you know, we should be treated well when we reach out to get help from a company. And that we're not is sort of indicative of kind of a greater problem we have in the United States with taking people and their issues seriously at all. Well said, as usual, we're unfortunately at the end of our time. It's all part of this program of uh, our report, The Incommunicados. You can go to incommunicadoswatch.org. I hope you enjoy reading it, Helene Olin, and thank you very much for your work over the years. And thank you for yours as well. We've been speaking with Helene Olin. We will link to her work at ralphnadaradiohour.com. I want to thank our guests again, Bruce Fine and Helene Olin. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard... A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. We'll welcome Jennifer Vanderbest to discuss her new book, Wonder Drug, The Secret History of Thalidomide in America and Its Hidden Victims. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. And the eagerly awaited most recent issue of The Capital Citizen is out. 40 pages of pulsating information about Congress that you don't read about in the mainstream press, you can get it by going to CapitalHillCitizen.com. And it's only $5. You get it first-class mail, all 40 pages of it, quickly. And if you want to contribute more, please do. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to The Wrap-Up. First, we continue our conversation with Bruce Fine. This incommunicado spreads like a, a virus. Tell our listeners about our letters to the editors of the major law school law reviews. Yeah, yeah. What we did is we picked out what we thought of an important point of law that had been relatively ignored. That is the pattern of Congress enacting laws, setting forth a policy, but then giving the president, you know, limitless waiver power to say, well, if it's a national security, I don't have to comply with the law. And, you know, is this a problem of standardless? delegation that raises constitutional separation of powers problem? Does it raise an issue with the president's obligation to faithfully execute the law if he can just waive the law at a whim, which happens regularly, especially because, you know, one of the we really picked up in Article two, the obligation of a president to faithfully execute the laws from the protest the British Parliament had against King James II, who was not enforcing the laws that Parliament enacted and their great remonstrance and you know, English Bill of Rights put in a provision specifically saying a king cannot not enforce the law unless parliament agrees with him. So it's not signed of a, a very, very marginal provision in the Constitution. So we wrote these law review editors and said, this is an important topic to cover because it enables the president to evade a policy and Congress to basically appear that they're supporting a policy, knowing the president will waive it. And so therefore, they're not accountable to their constituents for what they voted on. We didn't get any response at all. I mean, a complete absence 
And we even followed up. I did on a couple of cases at Georgetown Law School, Law Review editor. And I mean, not only not having a, an article written, not only your response saying, well, we've looked at the waiver issue, we've decided that it's not important. I don't know whether maybe it's that the schools don't even teach separation of powers anymore. But on, on a parallel score, Ralph, you remember the letter we wrote to the deans of the law school saying, you know, you don't teach anything about how Congress operates, which is basically operation dereliction, you know, because you have people who have largely spent their entire careers in the executive branch of it all government. They don't know anything about Congress. It's important to understand the congressional powers so that we can rebalance you know, the branches so that there'll be checks on everyone, whereas president, the executive branch goes without any checks. No response. Nothing. Not, well, we've looked at it. We maybe will add you know, a course here or there. <laughs> it's just, no, don't bother us with that. When we were at law school, Bruce, it was almost unheard of that the dean of the law school would not respond to a serious letter from an alumni. It was, it was unheard of. And now Dean John F. Manning of the Harvard Law School has refused to respond or even acknowledge to numerous letters signed by distinguished public interest lawyers who graduated from the law school he is now dean of. And you, in effect, wrote a very important letter to him on July 29, 2021. And I signed it. It's called The Moral Failures of Harvard Law School. Can you explain that? Yes. If you look at what I call the, the disasters, moral disasters in public policy in the United States, virtually all of them were architect by Harvard Law School graduates. You can start with the Japanese concentration camps in World War II, if you will. You know, who are the main players? They're all Harvard people. Franklin Roosevelt, Francis Biddle, Henry Stimson, another Harvard Law graduate. And, and uh, right up to the present time, right up to the present time, you've got former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo advocating all kinds of lawless foreign policy, military adventures, U.S. Senators Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz, yeah, Florida yeah. Governor Ron DeSantis, and even former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, not to mention many others. And what did you say to the dean? Yeah, he said, you need, I said, is there something must be a problem here. You must add, should have an ethics course that you should have to consider that lawyers have a duty independent of making money to cultivate an ethics, you know, that steers them away from just ratifying power for the sake of power, which is, I mean, John McCloy, a famous or infamous Harvard Law graduate said, I have to choose between locking up the Japs and the Constitution. The Constitution is just a scrap of paper to me. That's a Harvard Law graduate says that. That sounds like something out of, you know, Ivan the Terrible in, in the Middle Ages of, in Russia. <laughs> the Constitution just a scrap listeners, listeners should know he wasn't talking about Japanese military. He was talking about peaceful Japanese-American immigrants being rounded up in California and sent to internment camps without any evidence whatsoever that they were a threat to our national security during World War II. In fact, one of the most decorated battalions was made up of Japanese Americans fighting yeah. in Italy. And Bruce has been always been very upset at what happened in that time period, for which there's been recognition and well, there's been partial sort of a, apology. Ralph, you know, right outside my offices in Washington is a little memorial, you know, for the, the Japanese Americans who were, you know, illegally detained. They have a memorial that identifies all the, the concentration camps around the country. But it's you know, it's, it's been half-hearted, if you will. Think of this, that contemporaneously with the locking up, 
No, this was our great United States Supreme Court, including, you know, Harvard Law School icon Felix Frankfurter, who said, OK, it's all legal. <laughs> OK, <laughs> it took it took non Harvard Law School's graduates to dissent, like Robert Jackson saying that's going to run little. This is going to be a principle that will lie around like a loaded weapon, you know, ready to be used by any evil person. So the Supreme Court waits until a case called Hawaii versus Trump in 2018. This is this comes like 75 years later. They say, oh, well, by the way, this decision was really bad. It was wrong the day it was decided. Then why did it take you 73 years to pronounce it? You know, when it was just a piece of paper at that point. Someone once noted that German-American immigrants were not rounded up in World War II. It was very clear what happened, that the the Japanese Americans were hated. It had been, been a long history of discrimination against Asians out on the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, California. And they were at that time, Ralph, battleground states, so to speak, you know, in the elections. And so the worry was, hey, 1944, Roosevelt's going to run again. Hey, what are we going to do to pacify you know, these voters out in California? Because this is what I was told, Ralph, truly stunning by someone who is involved in the incarceration, Japanese-American. He said, Bruce... Anybody who is interned was told they can leave as long as they went east and not west, because the east wasn't the battleground states. Go ahead and do what you want. Of course, they didn't because all of their belongings and professions and contacts were west. But that's how ridiculously in, in a wrong this idea of national security. You can leave, but just go east, not west. <laughs> you didn't have to stay. Steve? Uh, yes, Ralph. I'm wondering, it's all very well and good to put out a report that says that nobody's responding to Ralph Nader and Bruce Fine, of all peoples. But how do you organize people to do this? It's it's one thing to say, yes, be a citizen, be a good citizen and and, and write to them. And But unless there is really a, a, like to use your term, laser focused, organized effort, it's, you know, we're going to be talking to Helene Olin about how people can't even get their questions answered for a computer problem from the corporate sector. Is there an organization in place that's going to support people and organize them to do this, to be focused? I'm glad you put it that way, because it's not just not responding to Bruce or me. They don't respond to any groups. We have conservative groups who are worried about blackouts when they write their own allies in Congress. They just don't respond. It's a phenomena right across the board into the corporate economy, universities, Try writing to engineering professors about certain engineering problems. They don't even bother responding. We have a letter in, in the book on that one. So two things. One, the consumer and other citizen groups have got to make a big issue of this. The problem is that no one wants to admit they don't get responded to because they appear powerless, weak. We reject that. The only way to become stronger is to admit you're being blacked out. You're being discriminated against. The civil rights movement, women's rights movement demonstrated the truth of that assertion. The second thing is these members of Congress are going back for a five-week recess, August all the way until the day after Labor Day. So they'll be going around shaking hands. And if you go to any of these meetings, you've got to come up and say, look, I want you to write a letter to me why you're not responding to serious correspondence. So, oh, what do you mean we're not responding? Of course we respond. Yeah, well, why don't you look at this book, Incommunicados, and see what the truth is really like? Because it doesn't matter if they're conservative, liberals, Democrats, Republicans. They're all on the same culture. They just flip people off. 
and they think they can get away with it. So if you go face to face with them, with other people in the room, with the senator representative, and there may be local press, they get enough embarrassed. So they start going back to Congress saying, look, let's go back to the old days when we kept up with our correspondence. We have to respond to people, not just casework. We have to respond to serious policy issues and proposals. All right, Hannah. Thank you. My question is about Santa Claus. <laughs> it's a serious question, I promise. In 1912, the U.S. Postal Service decided that it wanted to change its policies around, around letters to Santa, and it started allowing individual employees and eventually nonprofits or corporate participants to start opening these letters addressed to Kris Kringle, Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, to fulfill this void. There were all these letters that went unresponded to, and there was a push in the media. Newspapers were were publishing these letters. It was problematic. A lot of them shared private information about, about children, but there was a coordinated effort in the early 20th century between the post office, the media, the nonprofit sector, a lot of grifters, and philanthropists to respond meaningfully to all of these, you know, orphaned letters. Are there any lessons that you think we might learn from our approach to Operation Santa? <laughs> Bruce? Well, listen, it means that you have to be active. Inertness is the one sin that's not available in a democratic system. I'm not sure how, obviously, the, the members of Congress feel less threatened in a, by letters about presents that Santa Claus might give than letters that we might write critiquing what their policies are and asking them questions that they would like to avoid because they, unfortunately, the, the members are terrified of taking a stance on anything that they could think would lead to a primary. And so this may be you know, an ulterior motive they have for not responding to Ralph and me, well, if we write back and then our opponent at primary time says, hey, look, we, they told, he said so-and-so, you know, that makes him vulnerable. So they rather just sit and do nothing. You know? So they feel that they're on all sides of all things. But go back to the Santa Claus. Listen, we have an obligation. In some sense, we won lottery tickets by being born in the United States and not in Tiananmen Square, Red Square. So we have this opportunity to participate. Doesn't mean we get our way. And it's simply not acceptable to be inactive. And who knows when the, you know, the, the snowball will reach a certain threshold where it you know, starts to go downhill rather than uphill. So the fact is, whether you can succeed or not, and I, that's why, despite I'm not denying that Steve's got great understandings of the Mount Everest we've got to climb, you still got to start with a single step. And if it doesn't happen for 10 years, so be it. At least you did something in the right direction. And that's the kind of attitude we've got to cultivate in the schools and in the home. And in the, the, the synagogues and the churches and the mosques and every other place, that's an obligation we have, especially got to tell everyone, we want a lottery ticket. We're in the United States. You know, we have these freedoms. And it came because a lot of people suffered and sacrificed a whole lot. We can't be ingrates and, and let our posterity inherit anything less. That's the basic thing that we got to understand. And it's truly a tragedy that our current generation is just squandering these liberties right and left. We're hemorrhaging liberty and the rule of law. In conclusion, some of our listeners sent in letters demanding to know what senators and representatives are going to do on the corporate crime wave, what hearings are going to be held. So you can bring copies of your unanswered letters 
or unresponsive letters to these meetings in, in August during the recess. The same for a letter some of our listeners sent on corporate tax escapees and how the big corporations and super rich pay a far lower rate of taxation than ordinary workers do in our country. So bring the letter or any other letter you sent. Bring the letter and give it to the senator and representative. And now more with Helene Olin. Doesn't it occur to you once in a while, Helene, that there's far more exposure of corporate crime and corporate abuse and corporate fraud than activity to deal with it. It gets very frustrating. The consumer groups are not as aggressive as they used to be. Consumers Union, Consumer Federation of America and others, they need a jolt from journalists like you to ask why they're not doing anything about it. I can't even get them to tell the savers of America who are stuck at one-tenth or two-tenths of one percent in their bank to go and call their bank and say, how can I get up to four and a half percent? You haven't informed me. Billions of dollars are being left on the table. So I think you need to give them a jolt, remind them of their earlier days, and get them moving on fine print contracts. Because again, my nephews come up with a very good idea, and that's to create an open source system for various contracts by various companies and have people come in and rewrite the contract so that it's consumer protective and consumer sensitive. So I hope you'll pay more attention, you and your colleagues, because years ago, Helene, we started a group called Fair Contracts, and we really documented it, you know, company by company, American Express, Visa, the banks, utilities. You can actually go to the website to see the work products called faircontracts.org. But then it was suspended. We couldn't get anybody in the press to focus on it. Therefore, we couldn't get any state legislators to do anything about it. You know the cycle. They look for issues to do something about in state legislatures or Congress if the press is going to cover it. It's just astonishing because I don't think it's an exaggeration to say underneath almost all consumer abuses is the fine print contract, whether it's with the auto dealer, with the insurance company, with the bank, with the electric company with companies like Facebook, Google, they all incarcerate you in this consumer peonage. So I hope you pay more attention to it. I got to give you some personal examples here, maybe to encourage you. I used to do my airline reservations in the evening because they weren't that busy. However, they were busy enough, allegedly, when you call United, USA, or Delta, to keep you on the line indefinitely and play music. In fact, uh, I used to Say, once in a while, when I'm not even doing a reservation, I call the airlines because I like the classical music played by United Airlines or the, the New Age music played by American Airlines. At any rate, I finally got a hold of the CEO of U.S. Air before it merged, and I said, how do you make your reservation? He said, well, I, I don't make it personally. I just have someone in the office to make it. I said, well, do you have any idea how long the wait time is by your customers? He said, no. I said, why don't you impersonate a customer? Just call as if you're a customer and see if what I'm telling you is accurate. And then get back to me. Well, lo and behold, three weeks later or so, he got back to me. And he said, you've understated the problem. I've just hired 200 more telephone operators. So, you know, if you can get through to the CEO and reporters should be able to get through to the top of a company, you might get some sensitivity there if they behave like customers and call their own company 
and see what it's like. I once asked Fred Smith, the head of FedEx, how do you get a toehold up against the post office, which had 32,000 branches, and here he was trying to get overnight delivery service. And he said two things. He said, one, the hub concept I developed when I wrote my thesis at Yale. And second, I ordered my staff to answer every phone with a human being in no more than three rings. Of course, that's all bygones now. They don't do that anymore. But that's how he got the foothold, because people really appreciate not being put on hold by the Postal Service 10, 20, 50 minutes. Once I had it on for over 12 hours, I just laid the phone down and they never answered the phone. And that's why they ended up with only 6% of the express business overnight, 6%. And they have 32,000 branches. Anyhow, I thought you'd be interested in that. You want some good proposals? Send them my way. I mean, the contention okay. I would make, and it's overarching to, you know, all of these topics we've covered, the contracts, which, you know, in the name of, you know, which they give you in the name of disclosure. And then, of course, if you have a problem with one of the, you know, parts of it, you can't delete it. You either sign it or you don't, right? The other problem, before we conclude, you've probably written about, is the credit card economy has made it very hard to quit a vendor. I mean, some of the credit card companies will charge you for quitting them. And just try to try to quit, you know, from one bank to another or, or one insurance company to another. It's like they have a plan to make you miserable over the days and weeks when you try to untangle yourself and express your consumer right to go across the street to a better competitor. Have you ever written on this? I've written about it in, in bits and pieces. I mean, because one of the issues, of course, is, you know, if you close, say, a bank account, you know, it's often kept going for a long time. And people, because it's, you know, you think you've closed it because you've pulled money out, right? Which would seem kind of logical. If I'm not using this account anymore, it should close. But in fact, you know, yeah. banks will often charge you for it, the privilege of keeping that dead account going. And they do make this very hard. And I've, I believe I've written about this in the past. And it's just one of these issues that's become increasingly neglected. You know, the people want to be able to transfer banks easily. They want to be able to change over. The perfect example I like to use a lot, which literally makes no sense, is if you close a credit card down, which should seem to be a good thing, right? We want to encourage people to save. We want to have simpler financial lives. In fact, people's credit score takes a hit for the act of closing down a credit card, which is one of those things that is just so counterintuitive and makes so little sense to an individual that you've got to like sort of question, why is this even allowed? Yeah, well, that's another controlling process. The control of the credit score, the credit bureaus, the New York Times Magazine had a great article on that a few weeks ago, and we're going to revisit that. Go to faircontracts.org, connect with some of these ideas. If you want to take the plunge, send a, a bill to the company for wasting your time unreasonably in order to reduce the number of workers they have to hire and to break your negotiating power, break your stamina. There are always some consumers who rise above it. We have one from Hartford. His name is Steve Fournier. And there are always some breakthrough consumers here that pioneer and then a lot follow. And now here's Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. The Screen Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA, has joined the Writers Guild in going on strike following the collapse of negotiations with the studios. 
This new strike covers 160,000 actors, and coming as it does amid the writer's strike will effectively shut down Hollywood production for the foreseeable future. In a widely shared video, SAG-AFTRA president Fran Drescher decried the studios for, quote, pleading poverty while giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. The Intercept reports that AOC has authored an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act requiring, quote, the CIA, Pentagon, and State Department to declassify information related to the U.S. government's role in the Chilean coup that brought dictator Augusto Pinochet to power, end quote. Much of what the public knows about the Chilean coup came out through the legendary church committee hearings, and it is encouraging that someone in Congress is interested in taking up that mantle. In Florida, a joint investigation by the Tampa Bay Times and Miami Herald uncovered the disturbing reality underlying Governor DeSantis's revamped Florida State Guard. While recruits were initially told they would be training for a non-military mission to, quote, help Floridians in times of need or disaster, end quote, they were instead taught how to, quote, repel with ropes, navigate through the woods, and respond to incidents under military command, end quote. Major General John D. Haas, charged with overseeing the program, is quoted saying the State Guard is a, quote, military organization, end quote, that will be used not just for emergencies, but for, quote, aiding law enforcement with riots and illegal immigration. Longtime civil rights leader and two-time presidential candidate Reverend Jesse Jackson has announced that he is retiring from his role as president of the Rainbow Push Coalition per The Hill. He had led the group for over 50 years, even after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2017. President Biden said of Jackson, quote, I've seen him as history will remember him, a man of God and of the people, determined, strategic, and unafraid of the work to redeem the soul of our nation. Uruguay, the small South American nation sandwiched between Argentina and Brazil, is experiencing its worst drought in 74 years. The situation has become so dire that authorities are mixing salt water into the public drinking water. Now, The Guardian reports that Uruguayans are protesting a planned Google data center that would consume 2 million gallons of water per day. In response to this crisis, a new group has cropped up, the Commission to Defend Water and Life, backed by the country's trade unions, and their slogan has become ubiquitous. This is not a drought, it's a pillage. Rep. Pramila Jayapal, chair of the Progressive Caucus, got herself into trouble this week by calling Israel a, quote, racist state, end quote, in a speech to the Progressive Summit Netroots Nation, per CNN. While clumsily worded, Jayapal's statement actually vastly understates the issue. According to mainstream groups like Amnesty International, Israel is in fact an, quote, apartheid state. More on Israel, the New York Times reports that, quote, at least 180 senior fighter pilots, elite commandos, and cyber intelligence specialists in the Israeli military reserve have informed their commanders that they will no longer report for volunteer duty if the government proceeds with a plan to limit judicial influence by the end of the month, end quote. While media coverage of the protests against this judicial overhaul has slowed, the protests themselves are very much ongoing, and these resignations prove there is significant discontent among secular Israelis. It remains to be seen whether the opposition by mainstream Israeli society to authoritarian creep will substantively address any of the underlying issues, such as the occupation of Palestine. In an update to the Guatemala story from last week, Al Jazeera reports that in a statement, quote, the public prosecutor's office denied accusations that its actions were aimed at derailing the anti-corruption seed movement's prospects as it competes in the final round of voting, end quote. This prosecutor, Rafael Curuchiche, 
has, quote, previously targeted anti-corruption campaigners and has been placed on the U.S. Department of State's angle list for, quote, corrupt and undemocratic actors, end quote. The decision to ban the party has already been reversed by Guatemala's constitutional court, the highest court in that country. The party's leader, Bernardo Aravelo, has stated, quote, we are in the electoral race, we are moving forward, and we will not be stopped by this corrupt group. The Houston Chronicle reports that, quote, officers working for Texas Governor Greg Abbott's border security initiative have been ordered to push children into the Rio Grande and have been told not to give water to migrants, end quote. These abuses were revealed in an email from a Texas Department of Public Safety trooper who described the actions as, quote, inhumane. Finally, Universal Studios appears to have unlawfully trimmed trees on the public sidewalk outside of their building in Los Angeles, a transparent attempt to discourage picketers by denying them shade during the ongoing heat wave. City controller Kenneth Mejia has announced that his office is launching an investigation. Ironically, this shows Hollywood executives are perfectly capable of cuts at the top. And this has been In Case You Haven't Heard. Thank you, Francesco. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we welcome Jennifer Vanderbiss to discuss her new book, Wonder Drug, The Secret History of Thalidomide in America and Its Hidden Victims. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting with-